to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, the privilege of gathering together. No, Lord, we thank you that uh, church is fun, that we get to laugh in your presence, that we get to enjoy community uh, in your presence. And Lord, we thank you that uh, when we gather, God, you are indeed here with us, that your presence is with us, that you are tangible, that you long to be felt, you long to meet your people. And God, we ask that today, even as your word is, uh, is being preached, even as we hear from your word this morning, that you will touch lives that we will encounter you, that we will not just uh, talk about a great service, great songs, or a great uh, atmosphere, but we will talk about how we have met the living Christ. And so, God, we ask that you'll meet us here in our gathering this morning. We thank you for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we get started? In Genesis, we, we read about um, Adam and Eve. And um, we all know that Adam and Eve were planted in, in a garden. And one of uh, you know, the first uh, mission and task given to Adam and Eve were, was to extend the boundaries of Eden to subdue the earth. You know, we all know the state of the earth at, at that point of time, you know, where uh, the, the angels who rebelled against the Lord, they were cast down to the earth. And so the earth was filled with all these demonic forces. And Adam and Eve were planted right smack in the middle of that in the Garden of Eden and were given the task, subdue the earth, extend the boundaries of Eden in the midst of all these demonic oppression, all these forces that were against them. They were given the mission to subdue the earth, extend the boundaries of Eden. And that was the context to which uh, man was created. That was the context to which of the Garden of Eden, of Genesis, really. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that you and I, we were born into a war. We were born into conflict. There are forces at play right now that are against you. You were born into conflict. And if you do not realize that you are in the midst of conflict right now, that you are in a war right now, every time you encounter circumstance, every time you encounter resistance, you would think, am I doing something wrong? There are forces at play here. There is conflict going on right now. Am I making sense? There are things that are against you. But, you know, rest assured, God is for you. You know who can be against you? You know, think about it, you know, in the, in the Garden of Eden, you know, we, even in the midst of war, even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of resistance, we don't see uh, the things that are naturally associated with war. We don't see stress in the Garden of Eden. We don't see fear. We don't see anxiety. But we see uh, Adam walking with the Lord in the cool of the evening. War. Adam walking with God in the cool of the evening. Your greatest weapon in the midst of war and conflict is God with you. All right. You know, co- conflict can look uh, can looks uh, differently for different people. You know, and um, 
Let me bring up a few examples of how conflict might possibly look like. You know, conflict can look like an internal conflict, right? You know, you uh, have certain values, principles, and beliefs, and you're faced with a situation that uh, that you are tempted to almost uh, live uh, contrary to your values, beliefs, and principles, and that's an internal conflict and internal struggle. Am I making sense? There's those kind of conflict. And then there's, the, there's another kind of conflict, which is a spiritual conflict, which is you know, the, the devil's spiritual oppression, spiritual resistance, right? There's that kind of conflict as well. You know, a preacher once said that if you don't run into the devil every now and then, you might have to ask yourself whether you're walking in the same direction as him. Okay. But there's another kind of conflict that I want to talk about today. And... And this is a conflict that we don't talk about uh, often enough. And that's the kind of conflict that God sends us into. God will send you into the midst of conflict. God will send you into the midst of a battle. You will never experience victory and triumph until you go through a battle. That making sense? you will never experience victory, triumph, fruit, enjoy the spoils of war until you go through a battle, until you go through a conflict. Am I making sense? Okay, and so I, I want to you know, look at the Bible and uh, talk about the conflict. Uh, talk about an instance where God sent someone into battle send someone into the midst of conflict. And that's found in Luke chapter 3. And this is the account of uh, Jesus uh, getting baptized. It says in Luke 3, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And then fast forward, Luke chapter 4. After Jesus was baptized, it says this, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being tempted for 40 days by the devil, in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. It's a miraculous verse right there, you know, because it says that Jesus uh, did not eat for 40 days, and at the end of 40 days, he was hungry. I can't even last 14 minutes. <laughs> but, miracle. He's a son of God. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, let's recap. In this verse, you know, we, we read about Jesus being baptized in water and then the Holy Spirit came upon him. The voice of the Father came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then right after that, you know, he was led by the Holy Spirit. That word led, you know, we, we are familiar with the word ekbalo. It means to be forcefully trust, pushed, into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 uh, uh, No, when he was weak, when he was hungry, he was tempted by the devil. How many of you know that Jesus was led into conflict? He was led into a battle. Am I making sense? Yes? Let me ask this question. Did Jesus do something wrong? No. Was God angry at Jesus? No. Oftentimes, when we think about the wilderness or we think about conflict, 
we associate it with the wrath, with the judgment of God. But Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Yet he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Can I put it to you that the wilderness, because of this account, because of this, uh, what we've just read, the wilderness is not to be primarily associated with the judgment of God. Are you following me? Okay, we have a lot of ground to cover. So, like I said, I love response. So, sound doctrine might, might help. Uh, you know, think about you know, when you drink hot soup in the middle of a cold, cold day. You, that feeling just, mmm. You can do that too. Mmm. Add some good soup, Andre. And so when we read about Jesus' wilderness account, you know, we, uh, you know, I'm not going to put the verses up, but we, we're all familiar. You know, Jesus was let in and he defeated the works of the enemy. Right? You know, it's so interesting that uh, after Jesus was baptized, the voice of the Father came down saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The devil, when he met Jesus in the wilderness, said this, you know, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself if you are the son of God. It's interesting that right before that, the father said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What does that tell you and me? That revelation, that our encounters with God attracts conflict. There are, some of you are going through conflict in your life, are going through difficulties in your life, resistance in your life, not because of what you have done. It's not because he's angry with you or upset with you. But the devil, scheming as he is, is trying to challenge what God has already revealed to you through your encounters and through his word. Am I making sense? Jesus went into the wilderness and he defeated the works of the devil. He was led in by the Holy Spirit. You know, and we're all familiar, you know, in the, in the Bible, it talks about another wilderness account. We know the children of Israel, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, scholars believe that that journey would have taken them some 11 months probably, but it took them 40 years, you know, to get to where it would have taken them 11 months. And we read in that wilderness account, and it's a really sad account, you know, we know that people died and the people continually disobeyed God. They were against Him. They rebelled against leadership. And at the end of the day, you know, an entire generation had to pass away before they could enter into the promised land. Most of us, when we think about wilderness, Okay, and I'm going to talk about wilderness as symbolic of conflict, as symbolic of resistance. When we talk about wilderness, okay, we instantly associate with the experience of the children of Israel. They were sway, they were torn, they were battered, they rebelled, they were horrid. And we associate with that. No, when we think about wilderness, like I'm going through a wilderness season in my life and that's what it looks like. When we encounter conflict, when we encounter resistance, we think, oh my gosh, I'm going like, to die, you know, it's not going to turn out well. And we think in that manner. But how many of you know that Jesus is our model for life and ministry, not Israel? When we think about conflict, when we think about resistance, should we not associate more with the life of Jesus than the failure of Israel? Jesus encountered conflict, he was tempted, he was resisted, but yet he emerged triumphant 
yet he came out victorious. Could it be that that is the abundant life that the Lord desires for you and me? That even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of the wilderness, we can still be victorious. We can still be triumphant. Because Jesus did it. And Jesus came on earth as a man to model what was possible for you and me through God, in God. Mm. Good soup. <laughs> You're doing okay? Growing up, you know, I have friends that would describe uh, different seasons of their life as wilderness. I don't know how many of you have friends like that, or maybe it's just exclusive to Andre. Um, but, you know, I have friends that are like, oh, Andre, I'm going through a wilderness season. You know, God has me there. I'm like terrible. Like, God hates me. I eat some worms. You know, it's, I'm just not feeling like a happy camper at all. You know, and, and I have friends that will talk about seasons like that. You know, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, you, there's a tendency for you to frame your, um, your picture of God by your experiences or by your, uh, by your perception of your experience because they think that God is judging them, that God is angry at them, that God is extending His wrath towards them because they had that kind of perception in the midst of conflict. They choose to distance themselves away from a loving father and eventually his church. I have many friends who have left the church because they have a wrong perception or wrong idea of conflict, of wilderness. They do not understand. Sadly, today, most believers give room to a theology that says God will put us in a place of suffering and pain for punishment that there is no possible victory in. I'm making sense. What's the, what's the next verse? I forgot. Okay. This is talking about Jesus, after he was tempted by the devil, after he did not eat for 40 days, after he was uh, in the wilderness, he went through conflict, it says this in Luke 4, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and news of him went out through all the surrounding region and he taught in the synagogues being glorified by all. What happened at the start in Luke 3? Jesus was baptized in water Holy Spirit came upon him and then he was in the wilderness. Making sense? Following me? Yes? This is yes? Okay. Filled the Holy Spirit, he went to the wilderness. After the wilderness, it says in Luke 4 that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This is my suggestion to you. Sometimes conflict is needed to bring out what is inside of you to the surface. Sometimes conflict is needed to surface what has already been put inside of you. Am I making sense? When there's conflict, there's the opportunity to experience triumph and victory. He came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit, victorious over the devil. The wilderness isn't meant to break you or defeat you. The wilderness is for the purpose of experiencing victory. You're not to become bitter, you're, become, you're to become better. Am I making sense? 
The wilderness is for the purpose of forming you, of building you and making sense. And that's my sermon title this morning. The wilderness makes you better. Wilderness makes you better. You know, when I first enlisted in the army, you know, I, uh, hearing stories from a lot of friends who, were, um, who have gone through the NS process and uh, all of them described uh, the, the army time as like, oh, God is not in army camps, you know. You, like, you know, be, be, be prepared, man. You are just going to like wallow. And, uh, and most, of it were descri- most of them would describe it as a wilderness experience. They're like, oh my gosh, you know. Watch yourself, man, you know. Make sure you, you keep going to church, but it's going to be hard, it's going to be rough, you know, but just pray that you'll survive the two years. You know, and, and when I first heard that, I, I, I thought, thought to myself, you know, I, I don't just want to survive, you know. I want to, I want to thrive. I want to see, like, how I can come out triumphant and victorious, uh, even in the midst of, like, all these things that they were saying, you know. And to be honest, my experience wasn't that bad. But I remember, you know, when, when I uh, enlisted, you know, I... I you know, wrote my own Bible reading plan and I would do 15 chapters a day. You know, I would find time at night with my torchlight and do 15 chapters a day. And I did it you know, through my entire BMT. You know, and um, and uh, you know, I would have uh, bunk mates you know, who left church who were far away from God. They would join me in my quiet time. You know, they would like, come out of America and it's like, can I join you? And, and so I had like, a little Bible study club you know, in my BMT time. Really fun, really fun. And... Uh, and you know, I would say that my, my time, my two years in, in the army was filled with God. And, I, I, and it was not just that. You know, I, I grew leaps and bounds as a Christian. I matured you know, far beyond what I, I thought I, I could mature to. You know? And, and what, what am I saying? I'm saying this, that it is possible for you to go through an external wilderness without having an internal one. Many times we let our surroundings, our situation, our circumstance define what goes on inside of us. The Bible says this, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Bible says this, that out from the heart flows the issues of life. The Lord intends for you and me to define our external reality and experience through what goes on inside of us instead of the other way around. Think of Jesus in the midst of a storm. He had perfect peace to sleep in a storm. He could release peace to come the storm. Your internal world is supposed to define your external one. That making sense. It is possible for you to go through hard times, conflict, resistance, difficulty without allowing these things to define what goes on inside of you. Are you agreeing with me? The wilderness represents different things to different people. For some of us, it could represent a place of transition, testing, temptation, difficulty, hardship, uncertainty. To some people, they describe uh, uh, being spiritually dry in a rut not doing well as the wilderness experience. You know, it can mean a variety of things to, to you, you know, but for simplicity's sake, you know, like wilderness, let's look at it as conflict, let's look at it as resistance, let's look at it as hardship, let's look at it as circumstance. All right? To some people, they describe the, this wilderness experience as I'm spiritually dry, I'm not doing well, I'm not thriving, blah, 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 blah. 
How many of you remember the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree? Right, you know, Jesus walks past a tree, he wants some figs, he wants fruit. He looks at the tree, the tree was barren, yet no fruit. And then Jesus goes, ah, you tree, you're not bearing fruit. And he curses the tree, and the tree withers. Familiar story, yes? Um, most of us won't be familiar with this part, that. Is it okay? Okay. Just checking. I tell you, man, I'm conscious. <laughs> okay, okay. Shh, come back. We only have, we only have 35 minutes. <laughs> Lord willing. Um, most of us would, would miss uh, uh, this, you know, about the story. It says in the, in the account where Jesus curses the fig tree that in that season, it wasn't even the season for fruit to grow on that tree. In that season where fruit wasn't meant to be on trees, Jesus went to a tree asking for fruit. He did not see fruit, and so he cursed the tree. Wow. Son of God. What does that tell you and me? It tells me one of two things. It tells me two things. One, Jesus has the right to demand fruit of the impossible. He has the right to demand the impossible in your life and mine. Because through him, nothing is impossible. Second thing that it tells me, tells me this, that Jesus demands for us to be fruitful in every season. The Bible speaks about, you know, in that day in the New Jerusalem, there will be a tree that will have its fruit, that will bear fruit in every season, never stopping. That is his intention, that is his heart, that is his will for you and me, that we will be fruitful in every season, that we will thrive in every season. Because of that, the wilderness, conflict, resistance, hardship no longer is an excuse for me to not thrive. It no longer becomes a, a way out, a way of saying that, because I'm experiencing these things, therefore, I get to allow these things to define my internal world, my spirituality. I get to say, I am not doing well. I get to say I'm not thriving because these things are happening to me. But he demands us to, be, to thrive, to be fruitful in every season, even in the midst of the wilderness. Am I making sense? The Bible says this, that he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. There's a depth of experience in God that can only be experienced in the midst of conflict. In the midst of pain, in the midst of resistance, in the midst of hardship, in the wilderness. There's a measure of presence that can only be experienced when you go through something. Making sense? Today, I wanna, I wanna, my, my goal is to cause you to embrace, to enjoy, in some way, love the wilderness experience. I know it sounds very uh, sadistic. It sounds like, whoa, that's so messed up, man, Andre. You're telling me to love and to enjoy and to... And to Find value in, in the wilderness. How many of you have uh, been to a gym? 
I clearly have not in a long time. Um, in a gym, you know, you, you see uh, various of group, groups of people. You see people like me trying their best. Uh, you see people that uh, go to gym occasionally. And then you see people who basically like have a bed there and they basically live there. You know, and, and these guys, you know, they tend to wear singlets that are too small for them. You know, they're way too small. Way, way too small. And uh, they will look at the mirror and, and uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but like, you know, they, they will like do their, their thing and then like, they'll be looking in the mirror and then they'll go like, mm, yes, yes, you know, and they're like half smiling, half grunting and just like enjoying it like, oh, yes, yes. Right, how many of you have seen that? Yes? Go to gym, yeah? You know, if you've not been to a gym, like, feel free to check out one. But, um, oh, that doesn't make, that doesn't sound good. Okay. Um, and so you go to the gym, right? And you see these guys, you know, grunting and obviously in pain, right? But they're just like loving it and smiling it. Smiling. Why? If, okay, let, let me make a suggestion. If they do not see or do not have a vision for rock hard abs, tone body, tone buttocks, they they will not be enjoying or relishing in the moment, right? right? They love the pain because they know at the end of the pain or after this process comes a reward. They have found a purpose for their pain. Am I making sense? For the believer, we need to find and discover purpose even in the midst of conflict. Purpose, even in the midst of hardship. I am not saying that God is the author of conflict and hardship in your life. But I'm saying that He is able to make all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. And instead of looking at it passively, you and I have the great privilege of discovering good, of discovering purpose, of discovering value in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship, in the wilderness. Oh. Making sense. Romans 12, 2, favorite verse, and you know, it says that be not conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way to transformation is through mind renewal, it's through shifting perspective, shifting mindsets. It's powerful. Trust me. And today I want to shift some mindsets pertaining to the wilderness, shall we? I have three points for you, and I'm going to close shortly. Are you with me? Yes? yes? That's some good soup. Chicken soup for the soul. Okay, let's look at uh, Exodus, you know, and this is talking about uh, the children of Israel and their experience of the wilderness. Okay, since this, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Next slide. Exodus 13 says this, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey and Sukuf and camped in Etam at the edge of the wilderness. It says this after, and the Lord went before them by day 
in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Let's look at another passage of scripture, Exodus 16. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from, the, from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Next slide. Let's look at another passage of scripture. Next slide. Okay, in Exodus 16, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. Okay, what happened? Children of Israel escaped Pharaoh, escaped Egypt. They were in the wilderness, yes? What happened? God promises them Delivers, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. No, cloud, oh, sorry, not pillar of cloud. Cloud by day, fire by night. No, and the cloud is to shelter them from the war, from the hot, scorching sun. Fire is to keep them warm at night. Yes? Then God says, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Rain bread from heaven for you. Okay? He feeds them. Okay? Pastor Scripture didn't, didn't read. Israelites were like, oh my gosh, God, like, you know, where's my meat? I need some protein. And then God was like, oh, you want protein? Quail! Quail came in the evening and like covered the camp. Imagine that. It's a very scary thought. Quail. Imagine this whole place filled with quail. I tell you, you, you yeah, it won't be a happy camper, but quail came, you know. God provided. Yes? God provided. Okay? Cloud to shelter them. Fire to keep them warm at night. Bread to feed them. Quail. To nourish them. You know, it says also that, that in the wilderness that their clothes, what they wore, lasted. It did not tear, it did not tatter. That sounds like good material right there, you know. <laughs> right. I have a pair of Nikes, it's gone in two, two years. Man. But this one, man, it lasts, man. It did not tear, it did not tatter. What am I saying? In the wilderness, God provides. I'd like to suggest to you that the wilderness it's a place of divine provision, not divine absence. The wilderness is a place of divine provision, not divine absence. Often we look or we perceive that in the midst of conflict, in the midst of wilderness, in the midst of resistance, that God is not there. Or God choos chooses to withhold himself from me because like, he wants me to like, figure it out or he wants me to grow. But even more so, I'd like to suggest to you that in the midst of wilderness, the provision of God is made even more real. Because here's the fact. He will not have to provide for you if there is no need. In the place of the greatest need is the opportunity for the greatest provision. There needs to be a void for Him to fill. When you are weak, He is strong. Following me. Wilderness is a place of divine provision, not divine absence. I'm making sense. 
I want to talk about an unlikely expectation of divine provision. You know, I, I think we're all familiar with divine provision, but I'd like to uh, present to you, you know, another aspect of divine provision, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's have the slide up. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's a phenomenal passage of Scripture. It tells me this, that whatever obstacle I face in my life, God has already put in me the means, what is required to overcome it. He will not allow temptations to overtake you. Even if it looks like it's going to, He will provide a way of escape for you. That gives me confidence that no matter what comes my way, God has already put in me the resolve, the resources, spiritual metal to overcome it. I'm making sense. I want to talk a bit about temptation. You know what temptation is. Suppose, you know, we, uh, me and John, we go to a, a restaurant, right? You know, and um, I'm going to the US for my honeymoon. And in the US, you know, you, you tip, you know, uh, you give gratuity, you know, and that's part of the, the practice there. And so suppose me and John, we go to a, like a restaurant. Say like, what's a good restaurant? Morton's. Let's say we go eat pancakes. Let's, let's say we go IHOP, okay? Let's say we go pancakes, okay? And then we, 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 we go have pancakes. Um, I get there first before John. And when I get to the table, I see a $100 bill on the table. To me, when I look at a $100 bill, I go, wow. Jehovah Jireh, God is my provider. This will, this, will, this will come in useful. Amen, yes and amen. You know? But then you know, I, I realized that you know, this is probably like a, a really generous tip that you know, the previous guest left for the waitress, right? And I put the money down. John comes into the booth. He sees the $100 bill on the table. He picks it up and immediately calls the waitress over and goes, hey, someone left like a really, really generous tip for you. Here you go. The outcome is the same. I didn't take it. John didn't take it. But for one of us, it was a temptation. Temptation or the, 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 um, temptation is not defined by the condition of your surroundings. It's defined by the condition of your heart. You will only be tempted by what you find appealing. You cultivate what you find appealing by what you cultivate an appetite for. It's a condition of the heart. For one of us, it was temptation. Even the overall outcome is the same. It's the same. I'm making sense. The Bible says this, that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. He was tempted, yet sinless. That says to me that temptation isn't sin. Sometimes we get tempted, and then we're like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrid, wretched person. And then you come into agreement with thought, and then you act on that thought. That is sin. Temptation isn't sin because Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he was spotless, blameless, sinless. Am I making sense? 
It is when we obey the temptation that we fall into sin. The question of the hour is this. Why would the Son of God have to be subjected to temptation even leading up to the cross? He says, God, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Why did the Son of God have to go through temptation? I think there's two reasons again. One, I I believe that Jesus had to go through temptation to model what was possible for you and me. It is possible to live a victorious life. It's possible. It's possible. You know, it's often said you know, of the Son of God you know, and His life uh, on the earth that it was, He was sinless, He was blameless, it was perfect, and He was victorious. I put it to you that you can accomplish the first three, sinless, perfect, blameless, by sheltering Him in a bunker, not letting Him see the light of the world, and then when the time comes, or the opportune moment comes, put Him on the cross. Him sinless, blameless, you can, you can do all that. But you can only be victorious when you overcome, when you triumph in the midst of conflict. Am I making sense? Jesus' willingness to partake in being tempted and triumphing over that formed and defined his character, credibility, and integrity. Am I making sense? You can only be victorious when you are faced with conflict, when you have to make the right choice in the midst of options. Am I making sense? Temptations are there not to break us. Temptations are there to form us. Every temptation is an opportunity for us to experience victory and for us to reaffirm our love and commitment to the Father. You know, I, I've been doing some counselling and I remember uh, counselling a guy who was going through some issues and he, he talked to me and he said, no, Andre, I... I I, I want, you know, what is like the, the pinnacle? You know, I, I thought to myself, you know, like, what are we working towards here? You know, and I often think of like the pinnacle of Christian maturity of triumph or victory is when I have like zero temptation. Like nothing tempts me, you know, like I'm not drawn anyway. Like that is like, ooh, you know, you know I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm there. But I'd like to propose to you, um, a different way of thinking. What if okay, you were to approach every temptation as an opportunity for you to reaffirm your love and commitment to God? Instead of going, I am a horrible Christian, I'm a horrible person, I am tempted. But instead of doing that, relishing in that opportunity, in that moment, hey, I get to say no to something now. And by saying no to something, you're essentially saying yes to something else. And in that, you reaffirm love, commitment, value to the Father. Temptations are not there to break you. They're there to form you. The wilderness is not there to break you. It's there to form you. To build character, metal in you. So that you can handle the blessings of the promised land when you enter it. He will not bless you to the measure, to a measure, beyond what your character can handle. Making sense? In God's mind, there always has to be two trees in a garden. The presence of options provides us the basis for reward. God by nature is a rewarder. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Making sense? Next perspective shift I want to propose to you is this. In the wilderness, He wastes nothing. He gets you ready. He wastes nothing. He gets you ready. 
Think of like the boy with the five loaves and two fishes, you know. I'm pretty sure Jesus could perform the miracle with one loaf and one fish. <laughs> but he took the five loaves and two fishes. He took, he took all that the boy had to offer. Not wasting a single piece. He wastes nothing. He gets you ready. I, I, I quoted the verse earlier about Romans 8.28. Let's look at it again. Amazing verse. All things work together for good. To those that love God and are called according to His purpose. We have a misconception when it comes to the goodness of God. We think of the goodness of God in such, in such a manner that there is this thing that is good and God is gooder. Right? You know? Or this is like, like that. But, like, you know, life of Jesus, like, but God, we've got is gooder. You know, we, we think of it like as a skill, like, you know, like, you know, I'm at a level 6, but we've got, I'm at a level 10. Right? How many of you follow me? Yes? You think about it this way. We all know, you know, we, we say often, God is good. God is good. By nature, He is good. He does not, it's not that God does good things. He is good. By nature, He is good. And because He's a living being, He is still defining what is good, goodness through His actions. He defines what good is. I'm making sense. The mistake we make is that when we approach the goodness of God as comparative to something else, that's where we put ourselves at, at, at certain junctures in life where we have a perceived outcome or like this is what good outcome looks like and then God does something different. And then you're like, oh, but that's not gooder than this. Oh my gosh, God, are you really good? That's where, why we, we find ourselves in these situations and again and again. But here's the thing. God is good. All that He does is good. And when you put, find yourself at junctures like that, you know, where you have a perceived idea of what a good outcome is and God does something contrary, you can either choose to be offended that God did not perform up to your expectations or adjust your perspective, your thinking to align with God. Be not conformed to the patterns of the world but be transformed by the reading of mind that you may prove what is the perfect, good, acceptable will of the Father. Am I making sense? So his idea of good is far beyond what we can conceive. Right? And many times we get offended with God because he does not perform up to our expectations. Bill Johnson say this, says this, if God is your servant, he will continually frustrate you. But if God is your master, he will always impress you. That making sense. Freebie, but Romans 8, 28, you know, he's able to make all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all things, my past, my previous experiences, all things. You know, I think about Heidi Baker who had a, a doctorate in systematic theology in 1995, you know, but didn't use like a single lick of it, you know. Um, God used her, encountered her radically in Toronto and she started planting churches with like seemingly no need for her doctoral education. It seemed like wasted years, like seven, eight years, wasted getting a systematic theology degree and not having any like, application in what she's doing currently. But we, you know, those of us who follow ministry know that two years ago, uh, God gives, gives her a, a, a vision, a download to start a university in Mozambique. Guess what's one of the requirements that's needed to start a university? Someone needs to have a doctoral degree. He wastes nothing. He gets you ready. I think about Aloy, you know. 
Aloy plays Counter-Strike. <laughs> Real often. You know, he, he, he puts a lot of time into Counter-Strike. He, he's obviously very good at it. Right? Obviously very good at it. And many of us would think, like, where is the kingdom value in all that he's doing, you know? And of course, he, he like, he like, you know, um, he, you know, he, he enjoys, he relaxes and stuff like that. But through Counter-Strike, he's met friends and you're a friend that you brought because you're met on Counter-Strike, right? And you brought to church. He wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. No, I, I mean it. Sincerely, you want my heart. He wastes nothing. If you were to allow him to use what you deem is unusable, he will actually use it and impress you. You think that there are things in your life that are useless, are worthless, have no value, have no kingdom impact, but he's able to make all things, all things, your past, what you think is not usable, work together for good. He's just that awesome of God. Amen? Counter-Strike cell group. So what we need. <laughs> Land party. <laughs> that making sense. Oftentimes in the wilderness, in uncertainty and hardship, we do not recognize the value in the process. Or I will propose that we often don't see any value in our present experiences and to some extent our past mistakes. You know, one of the things I, I, I talk about often is, you know, my greatest regret, and I used to call it my greatest regret, is, you know, when I was a young man, I got baptized behind my parents' back, you know, and it really broke their heart. It really tore them apart, you know, because I would do something behind their back. And they weren't really offended at um, the fact that I got baptized. They were hurt by the fact that I did not want them there when I got baptized. You know, and that really, you know, like strained my relationship with my parents, you know, and I would often talk about it as my greatest regret. No, but because of that, you know, um, I used to be really uh, reserved. Uh, I used to uh, keep my faith, you know, really uh, quiet and not talk about it often. But because of that incident, you know, I uh, began to have more conversation, conversations about my faith. And I remember, you know, some three, four years ago, you know, three, four years ago, you know, my, I got a witness over Skype, my sister getting baptized with the front row, you know, being filled by my immediate family beyond my water streams. A few months ago, I got to put my brother in water. Just put him in with my entire family watching it. With my entire family watching it. He's able to make all things work together for good. Even your past mistakes. Even your regrets. Because here's what regret says. Regret is to imagine a past without victory, value or redemption. Regret says my past has no victory or value. Regret is the enemy to testimony. You know, I'm in the midst of planning for my honeymoon now, you know, and we're going to New York City, and uh, we're going to spend like four or five days there, and there's so much to see in New York, right? You know, um, and so we had to streamline, you know, we had to uh, put our list to like uh, five, six things that we we're going to do. And there are so much more things to do, right? Suppose, okay, at the end of my trip, all I talk about is the stuff I did not get to see. I just keep talking about, oh, I didn't get to see that, I didn't get to see that, I didn't get to see that, I didn't get to see that. That's regret. And what does that do? It pulls away from the experience that I had. It pulls away from what I got to see. And regret will do that. 
Regret will pull away your attention, your focus from what God has done and from what God is, uh, and from what God is doing. It will pull your attention to focus on what is not happening for you. I'm making sense. When regret becomes a dominant thought, it robs us of the God narrative. He's able, even your past mistakes, even your regrets, to redeem it. Philippians 3 says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. In the wilderness, he wastes nothing. He gets you ready. Last point, as I come to a close. I'd like to propose to you, for every wilderness, there is a promised land on the other side. For every wilderness, there is a promised land on the other side. Let's have the verses up on the screen. This is talking about uh, uh, John the Baptist and how he was uh, killed and Jesus' uh, reaction to that tragic news. In Matthew 14, it says this, When Herod's, that was the king, birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on the platter. Next slide. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. He commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Let's stop there. John the Baptist, you know, we're all familiar with him. John the Baptist, he baptized Jesus. But not only that, you know, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Jesus loved John the Baptist. And this is what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was the greatest of all Old Testament prophets. Greatest. And so this is a man whom Jesus loved, whom Jesus honored, whom Jesus valued. John the Baptist had a special place in the heart of Jesus. All right? And so he was killed. Beheaded. Let's see how Jesus responded. And next slide. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent multitudes away. And while he sent multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. And that, that, that brings to mind that, you know, sometimes when we experience heartache, hardship, conflict, pain, we do not take a moment to mourn. The Bible says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You will never experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit until you take a moment to mourn. Sometimes we look at pain and we say, no, I'm not going to engage in pain and we find ways to numb it, we find ways to cover it up. But how many of you know that a pain that is numbed is still a pain that is crying out to be met? It's just that you're not hearing it. Making sense. So Jesus went to the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. Next slide. This after he came down the mountain, it says that when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as were touched as many as touched it were made perfectly well. John the Baptist was killed. Jesus mourned. He's affected. 
broke his heart. He recalibrated on the mountain. He came down. And it said that when he came down, all the sick came towards him. And as many touched his garment, they were made well. What is that? That's vindication. That's vindication. God is a God of vindication. The Bible says that instead of shame, I give you a double portion. I give you a double honor. You know, what the thief steals, I'll restore it back to you seven times. God is a God of vindication. That making sense? You know, how many of you like watch long TV shows and like, these TV shows have like five seasons to them and, you know, and uh, always they end on a season on like a cliffhanger where the bad guy is simply winning and then they're like, okay, next season in a year's time. You know, and then like after that, they show another season of it and then a new bad guy pops up and like cliffhanger, next season in a year's time. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, when you watch a TV show, it's like getting married, you know, it's a long-term commitment. So I have to commit like five, six years to this like thing, you know, and it's so frustrating, right, you know, to end on cliffhangers where the bad guy seems to be winning. Because I, I believe that inbuilt, okay, in us is this sense for justice. Is this sense for injustice to be vindicated? Is, is this sense of like, I want a good guy to win? When you go through hardship, when you go through conflict, when you go through the wilderness, if there is not something in you that cries out for vindication, then you do not know who you are. You do not know who your father is. God is a God of vindication. Every challenge to our faith is a, it sets the context for divine vindication. God vindicates your wilderness experience with the promise of promise. 2 Corinthians 4 it says this, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And making sense. You know, when I talk about my wedding day, you know, I don't talk about the amount of money I spent or how much it cost me. I talk about, you know, my bride enjoying the day. I talk about my family enjoying the day. Why? Because you know, the sacrifice, the cost, pales in comparison to what I've got to see on that day. Am I making sense? And many times, you know, we get caught up, we get stumbled in the wilderness because we do not recognize that at the end of this present suffering comes an eternal glory that will overshadow, that will completely eclipse whatever you're going through such that when that day comes, that sacrifice, that pain, is no longer worthy of mention because it looks so ridiculous. It looks like a $10 sacrifice for a million dollar home. You don't talk about the $10 sacrifice. You don't talk about, oh, you know how much $10 I got to spend to get this? No. You don't talk about it that way. God promises you an eternal glory that eclipses every present pain and suffering. The kingdom truth is this. For every injustice, there's vindication. For every right choice, there's reward. For every wilderness, there's promise. Jesus, for the joy so set before him and dealt the cross, he kept his eyes on price, you and me. At the end of your wilderness, there's a promise. What, what have I talked about? You know? God, you know, he is provision. Your every present help in time of need, in the midst of wilderness, he's not absent. God, he wastes nothing. He gets you ready. He redeems your past. 
God promises that your future is full of light. It's filled with promise. That the end of this road, that the end of the, this wilderness comes a promise that is greater, that far eclipses every pain that you experience today. He's the God of your yesterday, today, and forevermore. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Can we stand? Amen, amen. Are you alive? Yes. Three people. Okay. We need we need to practice our resurrection, raising the dead gift. <laughs> oh boy. You know, I, I have a friend that pastors a church in this place called Round Mountain, Nevada, and. I probably like no one has, in this place has ever heard of Round Mountain, Nevada. But uh, Round Mountain, Nevada is a really interesting uh, town. You know, it's a really interesting place. You know, in order to get to there, you have to get on this highway, and uh, on this highway, you'll find a sign that says "The Loneliest Highway in America." And uh, when you get on the highway, you have to peel off to an even lonelier road to get to Round Mountain, Nevada. And uh, what is in Round Mountain, Nevada? You know, it's it's a it's a town that is built around a gold mine. Actually, you know, uh, most of its inhabitants uh, they are working the gold mine, mining, you know, uh, working in the caves. And um, the other people that live in Round Mountain, Nevada, are family members of people who work in the gold mine, or restaurant owners, gas station owners who are there to serve people working in the gold mine. So it's a town that. Is built around a gold mine, and some seven, eight years ago, uh, they recorded the biggest uh, discovery in uh, that town's history. You know, that gold mine is one of the biggest in, in America, and they found uh, they they recorded the largest discovery ever in the history of Round Mountain, Nevada. You know, they they tapped onto a gold vein and they found you know heaps of gold, and they they, they started mining it. And while they were um, mining that portion, they discovered that. Uh, nearby, there was another tunnel that uh, was leading up to the gold vein, okay? And the tunnel stopped short of meeting that gold vein. It stopped short by uh, the dis- uh, distance of 22 meters. They were 22 meters short of meeting that gold vein. And that, that tunnel was dug some hundred years ago by miners. And they measured the length of that tunnel from the surface all the way to the point where it stopped. And they measured it was some 2,500 meters long. They dug 2,500 meters and they stopped 22 meters short before hitting their price, before hitting the gold vein. What am I saying? Sometimes, you know, when the road gets long and weary and hard, we stop. And my suggestion to you today is that your breakthrough the promised land, vindication, deliverance is nearer than you think. Don't stop short. Don't stop short. You've already come this far. Dig a little further. Pull up your socks. Push a little harder. Vindication is nearby. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a promised land in every wilderness. There's a purpose for your pain, there's a purpose for your hardship if you were to allow the Lord in to make all things work together for your good. Amen. He's that good, the Father.